0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 15th, 2017. your host, Brian Cardown. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. This week, as the U.S. Supreme Court decided to take on a second political gerrymandering case for October term 2017, we'll be joined by Professor Richard Pildes from New York University School of Law to unpack the additional tea leaves the case provides for, for court watchers. Curious as to how the court might be feeling about the political gerrymandering issue. Professor Pildes says the the court, assuming appellate jurisdiction in the second political gerrymandering case, sends some meaningful signals about how it might regard the the threshold issue of justiciability, past which the court has yet to tread in in cases of this nature. Professor Pildes says the the fact this second case is now brought on makes it more likely the court feels ready to throw itself into this uh, thorny constitutional law thicket. And also, Professor Pildes says that the fact that the second case presents a challenged map purportedly benefiting the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican-leaning map challenged in the Wisconsin case that already heard oral argument will allow the court to address the legal question here without the worrisome consideration that often dogs the court when it considers politically charged cases that their decision will invariably favor one political party over another. Before hearing about that case, though, let's get to our opening briefs. In the Ninth Circuit this week, oral argument was heard in another constitutional challenge, this one a a novel claim in which young plaintiffs contend the U.S. government has violated its constitutional duties in failing to guard against the harmful effects of of greenhouse gas emission and climate change over the past few decades. That challenge cleared a, a first preliminary hurdle in the District Court of Oregon and now was heard before the Ninth Circuit panel, where the government again is contending that it should be dismissed based on, among other things, standing grounds. Here with more on those arguments is our Ninth Circuit reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. So uh, in this case, could you first maybe just describe who the plaintiffs are here and what the, the different bases for their their claims are? It sounds like there's a, a public doctrine-based claim and then also a constitutional challenge um, based on some fundamental right to essentially uh, a, a climate that's, that, that's livable? Is, are those uh, pretty much the, the main claims here? Yeah,
1: so uh, as you've noted, we have several plaintiffs. Um, first, there's a group of 21 young people. Um, they're be- between the ages of eight and 19, and they're arguing that as a, a younger generation, they're gonna face the brunt of climate change consequences um, going forward. There's also an environmental group called Earth Guardians that's involved in the lawsuit, and a professor at Columbia, Dr. James Hansen, who's in the case acting as the Guardian for Future Generations. Um, now, you know, there, there, there's these multiple plaintiffs, but they're all alleging the same claims and causes of actions, um, as, as you said. We've got the public trust doctrine, which basically establishes that certain natural resources are protected for public use um, and that the government is responsible for maintaining them. Um, The plaintiffs here are alleging that by allowing fossil fuel companies to burn oil, um, knowing full well that the harm they're doing causes um, the environment problems, that the government has breached its public trust duties. But there's also a constitutional challenge um, in the lawsuit that's pretty interesting. Um, The plaintiffs have argued that by ignoring the danger of global warming for as long as the government has, it's um, breached the plaintiff's due process rights to life, liberty, and property
0: you know, um real quick who specifically are the defendants to the the US government originally we had uh, president barack obama as one of the named defendants right and, and some of his executive agencies and i suppose in terms of you know, that that claim of ignoring or not regarding seriously enough um, the impact of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change um what what does sort of specific sorts of actions do plaintiffs allege that the defendants took or maybe did, did not take well it's um it's an interesting
1: case. It's very broad in the allegations that it makes. It uh, was filed as um, in 2015 against the Obama administration, which um, to some degree has you know or did tackle climate change and acknowledge the uh, the issues that it presents. Um, the plaintiffs have have said in their complaint that the government uh, for decades has known. That um, fossil fuels and burning fossil fuels are are harmful to the environment, and that they've you know actively ignored that uh, scientific information they've had and allowed um, allowed harm to uh, to occur to the to the environment. Uh, um, Named in the complaint were the agency heads of of, you know most of the executive agencies: the Secretary of State, Secretary of Commerce. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. I mean, pretty much any of the major executive agencies that you can think of. Um, but obviously, we have a new administration, and when Trump um, was elected, him and his agency heads were added to the complaint.
0: Okay. Uh, real quickly, we can get through the procedure up to uh, the Ninth Circuit. This case, uh, you know, a pretty pretty novel one, um, and maybe some might argue a sort of speculative one in terms of the you know standing claim or the damages alleged, Um, but it has cleared a a preliminary hurdle, right, a a motion to dismiss brought by the government. Is that right?
1: That's correct. In uh, 2016, the defendants, and it's, you know, interesting to note that it was the Obama administration at that point, moved for a summary judgment. Um, The case was originally filed in in the District of Oregon, and uh, Judge Ann Aiken has been presiding over it. She uh she a bit of stir and surprise a lot of people when she denied that motion. She said that the mm-hmm. case needed to be heard out. Um, but she's very aware of how unique the case is and in, in her order. I mean, she said this is no ordinary lawsuit. Um, and so uh, at that point, she
0: said the case needed to proceed. One other procedural note uh, we might plant a flag on here is that um, the government sought to appeal right then um, but was, I believe, denied by the judge a, an interlocutory appeal opportunity. And so that's important because then the option there, the government is left with is to petition for a writ of mandamus. Um, and, and, and that's where the, the case stands now before the Ninth Circuit. But the bar is a lot higher to clear for something like that, right?
1: Right. I mean, um, because, uh, you know, um, the denial of a uh, motion for summary judgment is not a final order, there was no option for immediate appeal, um, for the government. And so they filed this pet- uh, petition for a writ of mandamus. And the panel uh, that heard the case on Monday, which consisted of Chief Judge Sidney Thomas, um, Circuit Judge, uh, Marsha Berzon, and Circuit Judge Alex Kaczynski, you know, were very aware of what the government was asking them to do. At one point, Judge Berzon basically called the government out and said, What it had filed was, in essence, an objection to the fact that Aiken hadn't certified their appeal request, Um, and Thomas noted that if they did grant the uh, writ of mandate, it would open up a flood of mandamus writ requests for cases where summary judgment was denied.
0: To the extent that you have any sense of this, uh, you know, the government obviously is trying to clear a pretty high high bar here to avoid having this trial go forward to the next stage, you know, discovery. Do you have... Any sense that there's a kind of a unique or a reason, unique to this case, why that government would want, want to go through discovery? Say that it, it might be revealed that they they've had a better sense of the, the threat of climate change than they've led on over the you know past few decades, or is it seem to be just the usual worry that you know discovery is costly and timely, and that's why they're trying to, to clear this high, rudimentary, hurdle to to avoid it?
1: Well, right. So the government has publicly said. Um, that discovery in a trial would be just monumentally burdensome for the government given the allegations in the complaint. I mean they would have to sort through basically all government documents pertaining to this for the last 60 years um, and so in their filing and their briefing and their arguments for the court, the government um, has has harped on this. Some observers have you know speculated that the government might not want to reveal, certain bits of information and so obviously that's all speculation but publicly at least the government has said that this basically or this would just be absurd the amount of work that they would have to do to meet discovery requirements
0: okay yeah, maybe getting into the into the arguments here before the ninth circuit the question here is still a pretty preliminary one um the government argues that the plaintiffs you have not shown that they have standing. Um, what, uh, around kind of what prong of the, the standing inquiry did the arguments tend to, uh, to muster? It was the idea that the, the harm was sort of speculative, that the injury wasn't really shown or that causation would be tricky, um, or that redressability would also be a problem where, uh, where did the arguments tend to go.
1: Well, the arguments really touched on all of those at various points, but, uh, redressability came up a lot. Um, Chief Judge Thomas, who was fairly quiet for most of the argument, did note that, you know, if the plaintiffs proceed with this case and they win, um, an order from a district court judge requiring that, in essence, the entire government work to end climate change concerns would would require just a a really high level of coordination between all these different federal agencies. Um, And so that was a main issue. Um, before the court on Monday, but as they said, it it did touch on um, uh, the harm. Uh, um, Grant Eric Grant, who represented the government, said that basically, if if this case proceeds and is successful, any in all of the United States may sue the government based on um, these allegations that it's failed to protect them from climate change.
0: And then on the uh, the respondents, the original plaintiff side, as to just why. Uh, this case should survive this this stage and and move forward. What 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 were the the arguments there? And I understand um, there is some circuit precedent that that might be that might bear a bit on the the plaintiff's claim here. That could potentially um, suggest that the the case should be disposed of at this stage.
1: Right. Um, the plaintiff's attorney Julia Olson really tried to focus on the fact that this was a mandamus request and that the Ninth Circuit needed to address whether or not Aiken, you know, was wrong in allowing the suit to proceed, that she did not want a judgment on the claims, on the merits of the case. Um, she focused on the youth aspect of the case. And what I mean by that is that, as I said, the plaintiffs have stressed that younger and future generations are going to deal with the brunt of these issues. Um, but there is some case law that makes uh, plaintiff's claim a bit difficult. In 2013, the Ninth Circuit addressed a similar suit um, that was trying to get the state of Washington to shut down refineries mm-hmm. under the Clean Air Act. Um, the Ninth Circuit killed that suit um, and basically said that there was the pollution cost of the refineries was negligible compared to the amount of pollution in the state of Washington. Um, I believe it was about 6%. Um, but Olson fought back because the case came up to our argument and said that the uh, the pollution that this case addresses concerns um, upwards of 25% of the entire country's pollution. So um it doesn't it doesn't the, the president doesn't stop the plaintiffs case in its tracks.
0: Okay, uh, maybe broadening out a bit um, you know the 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 bigger question maybe here is is whether, you know, the the ninth circuit is sort of an, an empowered to um, granted stamp of it and premature upon this, this fairly novel constitutional claim that, that within the Constitution there is, um, you know, a, a fundamental right provided upon which claims over, you know, climate change could stand. Um, how, how and to what extent did, did the panel grapple just with the, the unique nature and the, and the novel, uh, dynamics of, of the claims brought?
1: Right. Um, no, the the court was very aware that this is a monumentous case. Um, during the the the, um, the oral arguments on Monday, District of Columbia versus Heller, Baker versus Carr, Brown versus Board of Education, Leslie v. Ferguson were all you know thrown about. Um, and so the Ninth Circuit is very aware that if it allows this case to proceed, um, it's it's breaking ground. And and District Court Judge Aiken noted that in her in her order. Um, But she wrote in her order that, you know, essentially for years, in her opinion, district courts have been too cautious in allowing certain claims to go forward. Um, And she said that it's time that district courts start, you know, thinking about novel claims and whether there's a real constitutional issue. So the issue was not lost in the Ninth Circuit, and it didn't seem to... um, make the panel want to back down from allowing the, the claim to go forward.
0: Okay. Um, you know, a, a practical consideration, perhaps one, as you say, um, most uh, deeply considered by Chief Judge Thomas when he was thinking about uh, redressability, is that the, the defendant here, as you said, has switched from President Barack Obama's administration to President Trump and his administration, and the the, the latter being much more skeptical that the, the government and that uh, humankind generally has a much a much uh, effect on the global climate patterns and and whether or not uh, the, the climate is becoming less suitable for uh, folks in the u.s. to, to live in um, that would mean that if the relief sought by the plaintiffs was granted um, the court would be Really suggesting or mandating um, some policy choices that that would be pretty um, you know divergent from those uh, ideally conceived by the executive branch. Um, just in terms of how divergent those um, directions would be, and sort of the practical reality of the court uh, demanding the executive branch to a 180 of its policies. Um, did did that come up uh, very much in argument? It, uh, it did indeed.
1: Um Judge Kaczynski um touched on this a lot. He noted during the argument that you know the Trump administration is almost certain and has already taken steps to depart with Obama era um climate and um energy policies. Um and so if the ninth circuit allows the case to go forward and the district court issues an order requiring um the administration to act on issues that it has eventually, you know, basically said are not issues. Uh, he said, um, to Olson at that point, uh, you know, what, who trumps, who, who, whose position trumps, um, and the government's attorney grant said that basically if the ninth circuit allows the case to proceed, um, it's, it's just going to become a collision course, um, or uh, you know a, th- a throwdown between two branches of government so it, it was certainly addressed and the, and the court is very aware that if the case proceeds there might be serious issues there
0: okay uh, maybe just one last one uh, from the extent you could tell did any of the judges tip their hands at all as to how they might be feeling about about this um the particular motion by by the government here to um for the the writ of mandamus did do um, you have a sense so it was more the focus of the conversation on maybe the, the high bar the government needed to meet, or was there more skepticism over the, the, the viability uh, and the redressability of the claims of the plaintiffs um, brought, uh, if you had, had to guess, what direction might the, the panel be heading here?
1: It, it, um, I think it would be harder to guess in this, in this argument than it is in others. Uh, this was not you know, a case where it was very clear how the quote will come down. Kaczynski seemed skeptical, equally skeptical of both sides, and asked a lot of um, questions of both lawyers. Verzon and Thomas both noted uh, um, problems with, you know, or, or possible problems with the claims that the plaintiffs have presented, but they focused much of their questioning on the mandamus issue, and, and they harp on the fact that mandamus, they'll open up the court to a flood of um, other petitions, after failed summary judgment motions, um, so if I had to guess, I would say it's very unlikely that the court will grant the writ of mandamus. But you know, oral arguments are always a hard arbiter of
0: what the what will happen. Sure, we'll, we'll find out soon enough, and then we can uh, look forward to talking to you more about it then. Uh, but we'll leave it there for now. our Ninth Circuit beat reporter Nick Sonnenberg, Nick, thanks so much for what happened on that podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Part of a batch of its most recent CERT grants, the U.S. Supreme Court assumed jurisdiction in another partisan gerrymandering claim this week. It'll be the second one they hear this term. Our next guest, Professor Richard Pildis from NYU Law School, says that fact that two partisan gerrymandering claims now sit on the docket, as well as the fact that this claim Challenges Democratic-leaning maps, as opposed to the previous claim, challenging Republican-favoring maps, signal a good bit about what the court might be feeling about both the, the case already argued, the Wisconsin case, and about the issue of political gerrymandering altogether. Here with more on that is Professor Richard Pildis from NYU School of Law is an election law expert. He's researched, written, and spoken widely on voting issues and has argued challenges to gerrymandered maps before the U.S. Supreme Court. He joins us now, Professor. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Richard Pildes from NYU School of Law. Professor, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. So you wrote this week on Rick Hayson's election law blog about a new gerrymandering case the Supreme Court has now taken on. This is now the, the second case brought on to the terms docket about partisan gerrymandering. Um, Of course, up to this point, one of them uh, out of Wisconsin has garnered quite a bit of attention. Um, Now this makes a a second gerrymandering case. Um, Before we get into the various ways you think that's a a pretty significant thing and and might signal what the court has in mind really for the first gerrymandering case and for the the issue overall, could you, uh, in, in broad strokes, describe the underlying facts here. This case comes out of, of Maryland uh, uh, based on a congressional uh, redistricting plan after the 2010 census, correct?
2: That's correct and in Maryland, unlike in the Wisconsin case that's currently before the court, uh, its Democrats who were in charge of the redistricting process after the 2010 census and the claim the plaintiffs have made in the Maryland case is that the Democrats intentionally and um, dramatically sort of gerrymandered one of the congressional districts to ensure that it would be controlled or to make it most likely it would be controlled by a Democrat rather than by a Republican, which is the likely result under the, the way the district had previously been designed. Um, mm-hmm. The district in Maryland is highly contorted in its shape. Uh, and the claim is that people were moved in and out of the district, and the boundaries were drawn in that uh, meandering way, uh, precisely for the purpose of trying to ensure a, a democratic control of that district uh, once the new plan went into effect.
0: This challenge has has already uh, wended its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court once before, right? Though in a sort of a, in a preliminary stage.
2: Yes, that's a pretty interesting uh, twist to the case. So. Uh, by congressional statute, challenges to statewide redistricting plans or congressional plans are to be heard by a three-judge court. Um, and then there is direct review from the three-judge court in the United States Supreme Court. And these are among the very few cases that still remain in what's called the Supreme Court's mandatory appellate jurisdiction, meaning, meaning the Supreme Court um, in sort of principle um does not have the discretion to refuse to hear the case, unlike uh, 99% of the cases that the court hears, which come through the discretionary docket or the certiorari docket. So what happened in the Maryland case is that when the claim was first filed, a uh, single judge dismissed it uh, on the view that the claim was not substantial enough to justify going to a three-judge court because... Uh, the Supreme Court had indicated in previous cases that partisan gerrymandering claims were not justiciable or that this theory uh, was not a substantial enough theory uh, to justify sending this case to a three-judge court. Um, and the Supreme Court actually heard that case and reversed the judge and said, no, this claim was substantial enough to be heard by a three-judge court. Um, and that the single district judge had, had abused his discretion, basically, in uh, deciding to dismiss the complaint instead of sending it to the three-judge court.
0: Um, so then that case was kicked back down below. What what happened between uh, sending it back down and now that it's been uh, returned to the Supreme Court? What has the that lower panel decided as to the congressional map?
2: So the, the three-judge court... Uh, In dealing with this claim, which is a a challenge to just this one congressional Mm -hmm. district, um, uh, and it's a a claim based on First Amendment-type theories, uh, which Justice Kennedy has signaled potentially uh, some openness to in this area, Uh, the three-judge court, in a two-to-one decision, decided that the the claim was, was not substantial. They rejected the claim. Um, there was a very strong dissent uh, by uh, uh, a well-respected uh, judge, uh, and uh, and so now the court has agreed to hear this case uh, on the merits, and it's an interesting irony that, you know, here is a case that when first filed, a single district judge said did not have a substantial enough legal basis to actually warrant going to a three-judge court. And now hear the cases on the on the merits before the U.S.
0: Supreme Court. Sure. Yeah, funny how that seems to work out sometimes. So that that point that you referenced uh, the question of justiciability that is has always been the, the most salient concern. It seems to be when um, cases like this come before before the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a preliminary hurdle over which the court hasn't quite gotten yet. It had its most recent chance in 2004 um, and decided that case wasn't justiciable, Though it sounded like um, that decision didn't categorically rule out uh, a, a reckoning with partisan gerrymandering. So now we have another chance um, with this case and, and the other one on the docket, this term, Gil v. Whitford. I suppose um, one point you make in, in, your, in your post is that uh, that question may be... So the answer to that question of justiciability in, in Gil Woodford, maybe we, we have seen, uh, maybe we get a preview of the answer. If the, a second case is brought on the docket, it seems unlikely that the court wouldn't um, decide that the question altogether isn't one they can decide, correct?
2: Yes. Normally, I'd be reluctant to read too much into the court agreeing to hear a case. Uh, but this is particularly interesting in this context because um, it might very well be in the normal course of, of Supreme Court practice uh, that what the Supreme Court would have done with this Maryland case is just hold it until the court decided the Wisconsin case and then once a decision in that case had been made the court would have uh, most likely as it often does in these contexts uh, have told the lower court reconsider your decision in light of what we just decided in, in this Wisconsin case and so it came as somewhat of a surprise I think to many of us who follow the court closely, that the court agreed to actually hear the Maryland case on the merits, uh, without waiting for its own decision in the Wisconsin case. Um, to give you, go, to give your audience a little bit of a, of a, of a sense of context for this, for this issue about justiciability, the, the question is whether the Supreme Court, uh, is prepared to hold that, that partisan gerrymandering claims can violate the Constitution and that courts can uh, enforce some constitutional constraints on partisan gerrymandering. The Supreme Court did for the first time recognize a cause of action for partisan gerrymandering in 1986. But even at the very moment the cause of action was first being recognized, uh, there was a strong dissenting view within the court that, that the court should have should have no business dealing with these kinds of claims. And that's what the non-justiciability doctrine is about uh, and so three justices back in 1986 led by Justice O'Connor said this whole area should not be one courts get into it should be, these should be considered to be non-justiciable questions not fit for judicial resolution um, and then in the most recent significant case in this area in 2004 that position had seemed to gain strength because you now have four justices on the court who were of the view that partisan gerrymandering claims should not be justiciable at all. Um, and the cause of action was kept alive by Justice Kennedy, uh, who agreed with the uh, four justices who didn't want the court to hear these claims at all, and who said, I agree that in this case, I haven't uh, found a violation, and I'm very concerned about whether there's a judicially manageable standard for these kinds of claims, but he also said, I don't want to shut the courthouse doors to these claims altogether. So he was not prepared, as they were, to overrule the earlier doctrine or the earlier case that had said there is a cause of action for unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering. And so that all set the stage uh, for this Wisconsin case, and one of the issues uh, in the Wisconsin case had been uh, whether the Supreme Court, particularly Justice Kennedy at this point, uh, would continue to keep the door open to these claims. And if it did keep the door open, you know what the court would say about when a, a, a gerrymander violated the Constitution uh, for being partisan in intent and effect, uh, or whether the, the court would actually now have five justices who concluded that the court should stay out of this business altogether and should find these claims non-justiciable. Sure. And then my read on the court's grant in the Maryland case uh, or the court noting probable jurisdiction, which is technically what the court does in these kind of mm-hmm. cases, um, is that the court would have been very unlikely to do that, in my view, if it <laughs> if it had made the decision in the Wisconsin case that these claims are non-justiciable altogether. If that's what the court had uh, effectively decided in the Wisconsin case, and we know that they meet and cast tentative votes uh, within a couple of days of the oral argument in the case, so they have tentatively voted internally on the Wisconsin case, so obviously we don't know uh, what that vote is. Um, but uh, if they had voted to hold these claims non-justiciable altogether, uh, then I think it would have made more sense to just sit on the Maryland case. And once Wisconsin came out and said these claims are non-justiciable, then that makes the result, you know, foreordained in the Maryland case that that, that claim would also not be justiciable. Sure. So that's why I say the fact that the court decided to put this case on the docket to me is a pretty strong signal that they are not going to find in the Wisconsin case. Uh, that these kinds of claims are are inappropriate
0: for courts altogether. Sure. Yeah. As you say, it's hard to be absolutely certain, but uh, that signal would be uh, that would be a fairly substantial reveal because it did not seem, uh, or it certainly seemed, you know, an open question in oral argument in Gil v. Whitford, the uh, justiciability question. A lot of the justices seemed pretty tentative about what sort of framework. They might apply if they decided to to go ahead and wade into these muddy waters. So that would be um, you know, a pretty uh, revealing signal if that uh, is indeed what uh, what this grant uh, indicates.
2: Right, and and just because the court holds these claims justiciable, that doesn't tell you anything about what they're going to do with them sure. substantively on the merits once they actually adjudicate either the Wisconsin case or the Maryland case. But you know that is to say that the court is not likely to overrule the precedent back from back in the 1980s that said there is a a cause of action to challenge districting plans as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders so now we're going to have to hear you know much more precisely when a partisan gerrymander is unconstitutional and for what reasons and what circumstances
0: sure. Um, sort of getting into that, you say another reason that the court hearing this second gerrymandering case is important is that the the claims brought by the, the plaintiffs differ, sort of the approach to um, how a court might identify intent or effect or Figure out just where the line is with uh, political gerrymandering. Um, the the approaches differ in, in the cases, and that's important for how the court might uh, might, might approach this issue, giving it some more options when it comes to figuring out a framework. Uh, what 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 are those different approaches in in the, the two cases here, and how does that uh, affect the the court's approach to the issue?
2: Well, I think your general observations are correct, and I think uh it's good for the court as an institution, and it's good for this issue that the court actually see um several different cases and several different approaches uh, at the same time, which is now the position the court has put itself um, in um and uh, and that's because that gives the court the court an opportunity to look at this issue more uh, kind of comprehensively and more fully so these two cases are very, very different cases in the way they have been framed and the nature of the challenge that's involved. The Maryland case involves what I would call a, a more familiar or more conventional kind of case. Um, in Maryland, the challenge is just to one single district. Uh, the plaintiffs are, are people who live in that district, uh, which is typically what's been required uh, for standing in 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 a case like this uh and the claim is that the legislature drew a highly uh bizarre district uh shape uh and sorted voters by partisan political voting patterns um and that uh both the intent and the effect here uh was a a dramatic democratic um, gerrymander of that district for purely partisan purposes. Uh, the district can't be explained as having been designed predominantly for reasons that are anything other than pure partisan advantage-seeking. Um In the Wisconsin case, by contrast, uh, the challenge is not to any one particular district or not even any particular set of districts that the plaintiffs are specifically saying were the gerrymandered districts. Instead, what the plaintiffs have said there is, the plan should be adjudicated on a statewide basis. And on a statewide basis, the aggregate effect of the way the districts as a whole or in their entirety were designed uh, was to produce a set of outcomes uh, that would intentionally and dramatically favor the Republican uh, Party. Uh, and so the challenge there is statewide, not to one individual district. Uh, secondly, the districts in Wisconsin, for the most part, uh, don't involve these highly bizarre district shapes, which are often a telltale sign of some kind of intentional manipulation for various sorts of, of, of ends, including partisan advantage seeking. The districts in Wisconsin are, you know, much more traditional in design. Uh, than the district in Maryland. And, uh, and the third thing is that the, the standing theory in the Wisconsin case is that any plaintiff, I mean anyone in the state, uh, who claims that they are, they regularly associate or vote with the, the minority party would have standing to challenge the plan. Whereas in Maryland, it's only people who live in the specific district being challenged who have standing. Um, So that's just to begin to unpack some of the differences between the two cases, but they really are framed in quite different ways. And that's why I think it's all to the good that the court's going to be aware that there are a number of different ways plaintiffs are trying to give content to the cause of action that's been recognized at least formally by the court uh, against unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering.
0: It does seem pretty appropriate to this... uh this type of case coming next because that, uh, that issue that the entire map was being challenged, there seemed to be uh, a, a number of questions at the, the previous oral argument in Gil v. Whitford as to why one person in one congressional district might have standing to challenge the whole map if they you know, would not have standing, if someone in some far off part of the state I don't, knocked over the, uh, their party's uh, electoral sign. Um, and so the, the single district challenge seems like it could uh, get at that concern.
2: Right, there's clearly, uh, uh, a, a, you know, sort of a novel uh, approach in the Wisconsin case, um, which, which, which tracks the reality of, of how partisan gerrymandering tends to work, which is that, you know, a legislature which is, uh, controlled by one political party, which also controls the governor's seat, uh, you know, is typically worrying about trying to, uh, affect the overall pattern of partisan control in the state legislature um, so the, the it's, tip, it, it, it's very commonly the case that, that redistrictors are are certainly focused on the bottom line at the statewide level of how this plan is going to help our party and hurt the other party so in that sense the challenge in Wisconsin tracks the reality of what redistrictors often are doing but at the same time um, it, it pushes up against uh, uh, the court's, you know, typical reluctance to, uh, permit overly, you know, kind of expansive standing approaches. Uh, and so we don't yet know how the court's going to respond to that. There were actually only a couple of justices who really asked very pointed questions about the standing issue in the Wisconsin case. And so I don't know what that means about how big an issue that is for the court as a whole or not. Um, but it was, uh, uh, it, it seemed that most of the court wanted to get into the merits of the issue, including whether the, the question should be justiciable at all or not.
0: Okay, yeah. You also write that that the, the signal the court would or, or could have sent by deciding one partisan gerrymandering case, the Wisconsin one, and that one alone this term, um, would have been different or it would have been different than, than the signal that it now will send deciding two different cases. uh, What uh, what do you mean by by that?
2: Well, because this Wisconsin case uh, is the first major case to go to the court on partisan gerrymandering since the early 2000s, um, it received an enormous amount of attention uh, once it was granted and in the run-up to the argument of the case. And I think many people said, um, including me, uh, that, um, you know, this was a key moment for this issue. Um, and if the court decided that the Wisconsin plan was not an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander, that would um, likely send a very strong signal that the court was unwilling uh, to have the courts play a very substantial role in this area. Um, if it turns out that the court is not inclined to intervene in Wisconsin but is inclined to intervene in Maryland because of the different nature of the of the claims there, um, then um, instead of the court sending the signal from deciding only one case and rejecting the claim in that case that maybe we're not open to hearing these issues, uh, the court would be sending a very different signal if it struck down one or both of the plans. Um, and and so I think it um, I think it will be a more comprehensive signal to redistrictors, redistricting lawyers, uh, everyone uh, about what the court's uh, approach to partisan gerrymandering is going to be when the court has two cases with two such different theories behind them in front of it, essentially at the same time.
0: Um, tell me about the, the importance of the maps here uh, purporting to benefit the, the Democratic Party as opposed to those in Wisconsin purportedly benefiting the Republican Party. I mean, the theoretically, the, the constitutional question, whether or not a partisan gerrymander um, you know, has constitutional infirmities, can be answered w- whichever party the, the map or the district benefits. But you say that having now um, two different cases in which op- opposing po- political parties Benefited helps to sort of clarify or just um, ease the political freight off the, the legal question the court will will be addressing. Why do you say that?
2: Yes, I think there are two important aspects of the fact that the court now has uh, cases uh, from where the gerrymandering or the you know alleged gerrymandering was done by by uh, each of the two major political parties. Um, one effect of that is that. Whatever decisions the court reaches in the two cases, um, it will uh, hopefully be obvious to people that the uh, legal principles are being applied in the same way in both cases, um, and so that that allows the court to be in a position of um, uh, showing in a credible way that the relevant legal principles uh, apply the same way, whether it's a, a Democrat or a Republican gerrymander. The second thing is that uh, because so many state legislatures right now in this decade are uh, under unified Republican control rather than uh, unified Democratic control or being divided even uh, in control, uh, most of these cases that are currently being litigated after the 2010 census as partisan gerrymandering cases are challenges to Republican plan. Um, and that can make the issue look like a more partisan issue. Um, with the grant of the Maryland case it's a very strong reminder that when democrats have unified control of political bodies um, which they, you know, may have that that may be much more true after the 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 2020 census and the and the elections leading into redistricting in the next cycle we don't know. But um, it's a good reminder that unified democratic uh legislatures are uh are are, are happy to gerrymander in, in pursuit of partisan advantage just like uh, unified republican legislatures are i'm not saying that you know they're completely symmetric with each other but that this is hardly a phenomenon uh in which only one party engages in which it has in, in context in which it has unified control of the political process
0: Okay, uh, Maybe just one last one. Um, over the next few months, take us through how you think this case might play out. Uh, does Gil v. Whitford, any sort of opinion writing go on pause there? Do, the cases don't get consolidated, I, I don't imagine, but maybe they might be decided um, kind of together or at least the same day. And, um, you know, to, as you say, the, there's some potential signal as to how the, the court might be feeling about the, the Wisconsin case in terms of the justiciability question. Do you think uh, deciding to hear this case sends any signal with regard to how it might feel as to to the merits of uh, either of these cases?
2: Well, I, I think the court is going to proceed with the writing of the Wisconsin case and the various, you know, if they're majority concurring dissenting opinions. You know, all of those will continue to be in production um, in, in the same way they were before the Grant in the Maryland case. But it may be, and, and I don't have strong feelings about this or strong predictions about this, it may be um, that the court uh, is gonna feel more comfortable releasing the opinions in both cases at the same time, uh, precisely so that uh, whatever message is being sent about this issue, uh, people can see it's being applied uh, to both Republican and Democratic gerrymanders or alleged gerrymanders. Uh, so I really don't know. I mean, on the one hand, the court tends to have a a tradition of wanting to release opinions uh, as soon as they're fully finished. And one would imagine they're going to finish the opinion in the Wisconsin case well before they would finish the opinion in the Maryland case, because the Maryland case won't even be argued for another few months. Um, and Wisconsin has already been argued, and the opinions are already you know in the process of being worked on. But on the other hand, in this context, with two big cases on the same set of the the gen- the same general subject um and and given the sort of you know partisan political uh, uh dynamics uh, surrounding an issue about partisan gerrymandering inevitably, you know, it may be that the court will want to release both opinions at the same time. I, I as I say, don't have a strong prediction about that, but, um, but, but that's now a possibility given that they granted the, uh, the case for Maryland.
0: Uh, then we'll go ahead and leave it there for now, and, and uh, wait very interestedly to see how this all plays out. Uh, Professor Richard Pildes from New York University School of Law. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: Okay, good talking to you.
0: And with that, our show for December 15th, 2017, is complete. Thanks very much for tuning in. It is much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed it. And look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.